You're listening to Grace Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. All right, here we are, episode 49, the shark versus bear episode. Thank you for listening. Um, If you're a first-time listener or if you're a long-time listener, go to our iTunes channel and give us a review. We need to see some reviews up there. And before we get started here, I want to introduce my co-host. I have Lewis Geltman, Outdoor Policy Council Director, and John Weld, owner of Immersion Research. Guys, we're at episode 49, Shark versus Bear. I'm here. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm under the cloak of West Virginia low technology. Okay. So we apologize for that. If Poor we have infrastructure. Some, if we have some trouble uh, uh, with John coming through. But before we get in it, we got a, we got a pack show. We got celebrities we got a shark versus bear we've got our new hammer vector voicemail we've got lewis checking in from dc much much more but before we get into it this episode of the hammer factor is brought to you by four corners river sports in durango colorado located on the banks of the animus river four corners has been helping customers get on the river since 1983 With a great selection of whitewater boats, gear, and accessories, we can help facilitate any of your kayaking needs. We have the ability to ship boats, boards, and gear nationwide and offer especially affordable shipping rates to Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and parts of Wyoming. We also offer free shipping on any accessory orders over $100. In addition to a well-stocked retail store, Four Corners is home to a full-service kayak school. We offer classes for paddlers of ability ages 6 through 100 years old. Whether you are looking to improve your role or learn about river running, our top-notch ACA-certified instructors can help you build your skills. Though this season's snowpack may be less than we'd hoped, there is still plenty of paddling to be done in the Four Corners region. Four Corners is the last stop before the Grand, as well as many of the other desert multi-days, and we are the premier sponsor of Animus River Days, one of Colorado's oldest whitewater events held on June 2nd. Use the promo code HAMMERFACTOR, all caps, one word, HAMMERFACTOR, 10% off your next online order. There you go, boys. <laughs> Tony, Four Corner River Sports, coming in big. We got our first coupon code. That's a seminal moment in podcasting. Dude, that's sweet, man. I feel proud that we're getting these like Roots sponsors. Four Corners, that's like a proud lineage. Andy Cora, Matt Wilson. Right. Good people. Oh yeah. What's that river they got right there? The good one. The Animus. No, the other one. Valcito. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. There's all kinds of good white water around there. Have you guys ever done an overnighter on the Animus? What about, I haven't. What about any of the canyons of the Animus? I've done. I've not done the new classic down there, and that's high on my list of things to go do. I feel like I got a lot of friends I'd really like to go visit in Durango. It's been a long time since I've been down there, but if I were going to live anywhere east of the Cascades and west of Washington, D.C., I think Durango might be the only place on the list. Well, what have you been up to? (sighs) I don't know. A lot of stuff. Nothing I I can get into right now, but a lot of stuff going on at IR. Big yep. news coming around the corner. Okay, big news coming around yep. the corner. Lewis, you want to lead us off here? You recently got home from D.C.? Yeah, uh, I was in D.C. all last week. Just got back last night. Um, 
Yeah, sick trip. Um, went back for like mainly I was going back for our board meeting and also for Outdoor Industry Associations Capital Summit OIA. We talk about on here every once in a while. They're the, the trade group for the outdoor industry, like title sponsor of outdoor retailer. But they do a big spring event every year where they have, I don't know, 100 some industry executives in to lobby Congress and visit with the land management agencies and just talk about the stuff that's a priority for the outdoor industry. So their agenda is a mix of conservation priorities and trade stuff. But uh, right as I was kind of nailing down, I don't know, right when I was about to head out back to D.C., I found out that 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 bill, Recreation Not Red Tape, that I had testified in favor of in October was finally getting a, a hearing vote last week. And there was, I won't, bore you guys with all the details, but there is just a ton of last minute wrestling over, you know, potential changes to this bill in committee. And, you know, I was getting, getting marked up, getting a committee vote on Wednesday. And we just like pulled out all the stops on, you know, getting people to reach out to their members of Congress who are on the House Natural Resources Committee last week, like if you didn't get an email from us, it's only because your member of Congress wasn't on this particular committee that was uh, holding this vote. But just like, I don't know, it's like not something we do very often where we're like all hands on deck, like we need everybody like to reach out to their members of Congress, you know, who are on this particular committee. And like we had board members calling members of Congress, we had, you know, partner organizations reaching out to their members. And I just like, did you guys do you have, do you have a special room at Hooters for that where you just they clear it out and they close the doors? <laughs> um, <laughs> the Hooters is not involved, but I, I did keep, I did have this, chili this fries, moment. Just keep them coming in. <laughs> I definitely had a moment where it was like like the first time that I like really I was just like in in the hallway outside this reception, just like like drinking one hand, arguing back and forth with committee staff about like this one change on the bill and like that was the first moment where i was like okay like i'm not faking it anymore like i actually feel like some sort of semi-legitimate lobbyist or something here and it was like i don't know it felt cool man i felt like we 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 made a big difference we got this thing across this this important uh important threshold and it took a lot of work and it, it could have gone real sideways. And I feel like it was, I don't know. It was a big moment for us. And but how does this affect me? Like, like, so this is what, what matters. Well, how does it, how does it no, make my life I, better? I feel like that was just like a super big explanation. Cause I didn't really want to bore you guys with all the details. Um, this is that bill that would direct the land management agencies to inventory for new potential national recreation areas during planning. So it's going to help land managers designate new national or create raw materials from which Congress could designate new national recreation areas and hopefully also provide some kind of short or medium term protections for landscapes that have, you know, a lot of the stuff that we care about on them. So hopefully, I don't know, like down in North Carolina where they're doing forest planning on the Nanahill and Pisgah, there's been this big collaborative process down there. And it, it sounds like there's going to be some recommendations for new national recreation areas as part of that process. And this is going to help kind of lay the groundwork for replicating more of those success stories. And 
I know, I don't know if you guys want to go into it or not, but this, this bikes in wilderness bill, um, What's that yeah. all about? Kara was, Kara was kind of riled up over that. We were, she was reading an article in Blue Ridge Outdoors or something, and there's bikers fighting bikers. That's what was my takeaway. Yeah, so, so you sent me a, the entirety of this item on the show notes is Kara wants to know more about HR 1349. <laughs> and I'm entirely prepared to have that conversation, by which yeah. I mean, I'm just making it up. But um, so... I don't know, towards the end of the Obama administration, there's there's a landscape in Idaho called the Boulder White Clouds Mountains. This is right outside Stanley. It has some really high quality mountain biking. And for decades, there have been talk in Idaho about how we're going to protect this landscape. And there was... Um, you know, some some people pushing to have a national monument designated out there. There were other people who were working on wilderness, and there was some conflict between, you know, like how we were going to protect this landscape, basically. But there was a lot of agreement that this place needed to be protected. And you know, as you guys know, mountain bikes are not allowed in wilderness areas, and so mountain bikers in the conservation community were working really closely on this protective designation campaign. Everybody was advocating for a national monument together which would have allowed for mountain biking. And so national monument is not a wilderness area, different thing. National monument is not a wilderness area. Okay. Wilderness area is, is, you know, for some people that's sort of the gold standard for conservation, but the biggest problem from our perspective with wilderness designations is mountain biking is not allowed. Can you kayak in a wilderness area? Yes. The, the term that's in the wilderness act is that it prohibits mechanized transportation, which is, it's kind of weird because when the wilderness act was written, mountain biking wasn't a thing. There's other things like, you know, like if you want to go with like the strict physics definition or whatever, like an or cross country skiing, is that yeah, cross country skis? No, but you know, not again, it's like, that's all open to interpretation. And the interpretation is that mountain biking is not allowed in wilderness. So anyway, so do you personally agree with that? Do I personally agree that mountain biking should not be allowed in wilderness areas? It's, it's not that easy of a question. Um, I mean, if I were designing a land management system from scratch, I would not designate huge landscapes where mountain biking was barred. I think that, you know, this is just me personally. I think that there are, you know, plenty of places that are wilderness that we find for mountain biking. I think there are plenty of places in wilderness that would, you know, are probably not appropriate for mountain biking. But anyway, to go back to that Idaho story, basically it like, kind of the 11th hour, the Idaho congressional delegation came in with this wilderness proposal and the conservation community was just like, we're all in through the mountain bikers under the bus. The mountain bikers basically wanted two ch- trails like cherry stemmed through the wilderness area to protect, you know, to continue to allow mountain biking on two like particularly iconic trails, castle basin and, uh, or castle and ants. I rode ants a few years ago, sick, sick, sick trail, like really cool ride. Um, so anyway, like this experience of kind of like the mountain bikers getting thrown under the bus at the last minute by the conservation organizations sort of spurred this offshoot group called the Sustainable Trails Coalition, which is a group of mountain bikers that are only advocating to change the Wilderness Act or to change the way the Wilderness Act is interpreted to allow mountain bikes in wilderness. That's their only issue and that's all they work on. 
And how does like how do they stand in regards to like Imba? So Imba does not advocate to allow mountain bikes in wilderness, and that's the split between STC and Imba. And you know, Imba does a ton of other things besides working on you know this one particular issue. And Imba's approach is we're going to work, you know, collaboratively as wilderness proposals are developed to make sure that they don't affect existing or prospective mountain biking opportunities where there needs to be a wilderness area that goes across some existing resources. You know, those trails need to be like cherry stemmed out of the wilderness so that mountain biking is continued to be allowed on those places. If there's a loss of access somewhere that needs to be mitigated somewhere else, but they're not advocating for changing in the changing the wilderness act. And that, you know, there's some mountain bikers who all they want is to see the wilderness act change to allow mountain bikes in wilderness and this organization, STC, that's all they're working on. And so, you know, it, it's thorny. It's like, so this this bill, uh, HR 1349, that you asked me about, STC got uh, Tom McClintock, who's a, a extremely conservative um, House member from California to introduce this bill to allow bikes in wilderness. Is, he just, is this guy just trying to put a stick in the eye of conservationists? I think what he's trying to do is to divide conservationists and the outdoor recreation community. Because, you know, like if we take this position that we want to make changes to the Wilderness Act, I mean, the Wilderness Act is just this absolutely holy thing for the conservation community. And if we advocate for, you know, one word of the Wilderness Act to change, everybody is going to be up at arms and freak out about it. And I think that the calculus that IMBA's made is that this is not, it's not worth it. Like, you know, the number of mountain biking trails that are impacted by, you know, this particular issue is relatively small relative to the, the, you know, all the other things that they do and the amount of resources they would have to expend and the costs of their relationships and the costs in terms of unity between the conservation and recreation communities is not worth it. But that what we really need to do, and this is our position at Outdoor Alliance as well going forward, is we need to be, you know, the conservation community needs to get with the program in terms of not screwing over mountain bikers with new wilderness designations. Like there are places where new wilderness is appropriate and we want to see that happen. And there are places where you have to, to proceed extremely carefully and cautiously with around mountain biking. And, you know, like if you, like we were talking about, you know, Ryan Zinke's proposal to just open up, you know, everywhere to offshore oil drilling and how he's like, Oh, you know, we're just going to put everything on the table and then we're going to roll it back. Right. And the result is everybody is up at arms. Everybody's pissed. And it's just like a, a really, it, it's a way of doing business that just, just creates conflict. And a lot of the conservation organizations, or I shouldn't say a lot, but some conservation organizations proceed in that same fashion with wilderness proposals. Like there's a wilderness proposal out here in Oregon from a big wilderness group that, you know, it's just smack dab in the middle of like, if you look at trail forks or MTBR, like the top rated mountain biking trails in Oregon, and they're like, oh, you know, like we'll, we'll make some adjustments, like we'll figure it all out. But it's like when your opening bid is, is we don't care about you guys, we're closing all the mountain biking trails you know, the reaction that that engenders from the mountain biking community is to be, uh, you know, angry and like justifiably so. And, you know, we're working and Imba's working to kind of 
arrive at a better way of doing business on these things, which is you got to have mountain bikers at the table and new wilderness designations from the beginning, make sure that you're not, you know, unduly affecting mountain biking opportunities. And so to circle back to what we were talking about earlier with that, uh, recreation, not red tape bill and facilitating the creation of new national recreation areas, we would need to have some more tools in the tool bag to protect landscapes in a way that allows for mountain biking. Cause not everywhere should be wilderness and not everywhere should be managed for multiple use, which means open to clear cutting and oil gas development and hard rock mining and everything else. It's like, there's gotta be some places that are, you know, where the priority in the landscape is recreation where we're, protecting these places with an eye towards conservation values, but also allowing mountain biking, allowing, you know, a full range of, of recreational activities. So that's why we're super, so stoked about that bill that made it out of committee last week. Is that at all clear? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is there a parallel, is there a parallel situation in paddle sports? Um, can't really think of one i mean i you know like, I, I didn't really think about this when i was younger but like like we are so blessed regarding access relative to other sports it's like just the history of river access issues like dating back to like the magna carta is that public water you know waterways are open for public navigation and that's like the default setting mm-hmm. but like you know like if you're a climber and the place you want to climb is on private property like you don't have any particular rights to just go there and go climbing but like we have that right as kayakers, you know, it's like, it's pretty sick. Like, we're pretty, pretty lucky. It's like anywhere you want to go with, I mean, a handful of, you know, notable or less notable exceptions, you know, generally speaking, like we can go there. Interesting. So do you think that answers uh, Kara's question? I think so. Answered. I mean, yeah, it's hard, sure. you know, it's hard. It's like, a, it's a thorny issue. And like, I don't blame those guys for at STC for feeling the way they do about it. Cause it, you know, keeping bikes out of wilderness, it just, it creates like a whole host of other issues. Like how you manage recommended wilderness, how you, it just, it, it's problematic. And like, I, I see why they want that. And it's like, you know, like when your backyard trail system is the one that's, you know, like when you lose access to a place you've been riding, like you feel that acutely and like how those trade-offs play out across, you know, the entire country, like that's less important to you and all of a sudden, you know, the place that you used to be able to ride and all of a sudden you can't ride there anymore. And so like, I don't, you know, like those guys have justifiable hard feelings about this stuff. And I think it's super important that the wilderness advocacy community takes those concerns like real, real seriously. Because we don't want to have the mountain biking community and the conservation community at odds. Like that's just not in in anybody's interest. And the the conservation community, I think, needs to be more attentive to that. Super interesting. So cool. You're on the ground there in DC. We got our Hammer Factor affiliate up there. You know, just rain of thunder on them. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan, dude. Is it too late to get a, uh, a Scott Pruitt T-shirt out? I feel like we're about to miss the bus on this one. We do need a Scott Pruitt T-shirt. I, I think- mean, we have li- probably hours left for this one. God, I hope so. <laughs> Listen, I mean, come on. He's going to be replaced with a, 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 an identical person, except without a – well, who knows, but maybe not without a controversial past. But 
Uh, I need some Zinky Subs t-shirts just to like hand out at, at Hill offices when I'm up there visiting. Well, we'll have to make some more. If anybody emails and says they want a sup shirt, well, you know what? I'll just make some more for you to hand out. You should, dude. I was about to. to... There, are a, there are a ton of people who want those shirts who simply do not know how to get one or where to get one. And people are angry at me that I have one. <laughs> I was about to send you a, a check for like 10 shirts just to nail off the people I feel like need them. <laughs> All right. We'll make some more Zinky sup shirts. Should we should should we move into voicemail because we're all I mean into viewer mail because we're already seventeen <laughs> minutes behind schedule at this point. So, um, are we going to go through all these? We don't have written up in our show notes here the uh, five messages in thirty seconds. Well, we didn't have any. We didn't really. I that's a, that's a periodic thing. Yeah. Like when when I gather five random questions together that can be answered in a second, I throw them in there. Well, we have our new voicemail. So if you haven't checked this out, we have a Hammer Factor um, voicemail address. It's area code 828. And you can go to the website and figure that out (laughs) and uh, leave us a voicemail. So we'll get into some of these voicemails. Good voicemails for our first week of having our our Hammer Factor voicemail set up. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) What was so funny? I'm just as funny. Your voice can be heard. (laughs) Literally. Exactly. Uh, but first, we got to get into a message here from Simon Wyndham. Um, Simon basically, first of all, Simon's like the fourth, the fifth Beatle here. The fourth <laughs> Beatle. I mean, he writes in every show. I feel like he's our European correspondent at this point. He, he sort of is, but he definitely keeps us in check. You know, like he's not scared to throw it out there. And here's one where he's like, I, I believe it was you, John, who kind of ran it on drones or 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 videos yeah. on drones. Yeah. Well, Simon has a very um, well thought out with links and resources. I know. He's he's overthinking this too much. I mean, come on. I have to put – I mean, we all do the same thing. We get on the show. We have no idea what we're going to rant about until the last second. And something <laughs> comes out and Simon's taking this too seriously. However, however, we should maybe take a second to introduce a concept to paddlers out there. That concept is Noah Weaver. Not so much a paddler, but an idea. Yes, the idea right? of Noah Weaver. He doesn't really yeah. exist, except not not on social media. He doesn't, which is an important thing, right? Yeah. What do you think about that, Lewis? Noah Weaver is Noah Weaver is my new hero. Dude. I quit Facebook like a month ago. He's our first Hammer Factor sponsored athlete. He doesn't even know it yet, but I'm reaching out <laughs> to him simply because he has no social media. Other people have to be like, "Dude, look what my friend Noah did." <laughs> Well, but if he's sponsored by a hammer factory, he's going to have to get on Instagram or something to promote. No, as, <laughs> as soon as he does that, he's fired. <laughs> like the second, like, the second the only he... way to get sponsored is to do nothing. Exactly. If you're doing anything for your sponsorship, your, the sponsorship will be removed. No, all you have to do is go kayaking as hard as you can, as long as you can, whenever you can. Doesn't That's matter right. Simon, Simon Wyndham, I would advise you to look up Noah Weaver. And you can't. And that's my response to the drone footage. <clears throat> at, at one point, I, gave, I think I had sort of fallen off, fallen out of touch with hitting up Weld for my regular allotment of kayaking gear. And I was like, all right, Weld, here's my pitch for you. Mm-hmm. Do you want your kids to grow up in a world in which they feel like the only way to ever get a discounted dry top is to incessantly tell everybody how cool they are on social media? Like, you don't <laughs> want that world. Like, let, let me help you make a better world. <laughs> right. 
Uh, I'm gonna do nothing, but I, I need a dry back. <laughs> and it worked. Oddly enough, it worked. All right, are you guys ready to get our first voicemail? Yeah, this is uh, the anonymous voicemail, right? It's, this is anonymous, but he wanted to be anonymous, but he gave he sent us a voicemail, which it's a pretty ballsy move. It is. What's so the ABRG treatment. <laughs> So here is our uh, our very first um, voicemail message, first of many. Oh, oh shoot! Looks like I got your machine. Uh, I guess I'll just leave you a message. Um, first of all, I just want to say that uh, you know I like the podcast you guys are doing. She's pretty good. You know, I mean, she's not great, but she's pretty good. I like to give her a listen, and you know, it's cool that you count all that stuff about the about the. Uh, the Washington stuff, because that stuff doesn't really get to us so often here, you know. But uh, just real quick once, I wanted to ask you a question about, uh, you know, I know how you guys talk about how you love paddling with your crew, but, you know, the only way you paddle with the crew is if you make one or if you meet another crew. And, you know, it's pretty hard to get in these crews. And, uh, you know, I just some of my personal experience when I've been out kayaking, trying to find people to boat with and I was first starting you know where I usually kayak and I, I don't want to say where this is because I don't want people to like call out any names but let's just say that on your list of places it wouldn't be a list you know it would be somewhere lower you know we get snow that's that so so I'm learning how to kayak right and I uh I meet a bunch of friendly guys they're bringing me everywhere you know they're taking me on trips we're paddling all kinds of rivers I'm scared out of my mind on a pretty much daily basis with these guys, and they're all just stoked. And, you know, that was my intro to, to whitewater kayaking with these guys. And then fast forward to later, I'm starting to do trips in other places, and, you know, it's pretty hard to find people to paddle with that you, that you don't know so well. And, uh, you know, for a long time, I just thought that people in other places sucked. You know, I mean, they're fine paddlers. They're just, you know, they just weren't super friendly, you know. We did some paddling out west and some paddling in the on the southeast and stuff. And, you know, sometimes you meet your guys and you have your fun and you do the rivers. But, you know, also sometimes she's pretty hard to find guys to bowl with. And then, you know, fast forward a few years later and now I'm starting to notice that even people that I paddle with, who in the past I felt have been, you know, real friendly to me. I'm noticing that there's, you know, people here and there that they're like, you know, just trying to stay away from. And I, uh... You know, I guess I guess it happened to me a couple times where I had some interesting experiences where we're, you know, we're trying to bring a newcomer up into our into our crew because you know we just want more and more people, and they, you know, for whatever reason they're on the river that day, and you know they meet their first like class five rapid, and you know they turn white, and oh my gosh, it's a whole thing, you know, they think they're gonna die, yada yada yada, and. Sure enough, they go hiking out or whatever. They just make your day a nightmare. You know, they go swimming and you feel like maybe they shouldn't have been swimming in the eddy and blah, 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 blah. So I'm just curious on like what you guys think about this because, you know, it's happened to me more than once now where I, I had a day not ruined, but definitely affected by some, by some guy we're bringing up trying to, you know, make him better. And he just, you know, for whatever reason, they weren't honest or or however it went with their skills or their comfort level, and they just kind of disappeared on us or, you know, whatever. They made the day, you know, they kind of put a mark on the day. So I'm just wondering what you guys think about trying to bring new people into your into your crew 
you know, and uh, just kind of what you guys think about that. And then uh, on top of that, I just want to know, like, in your experience, do you give guys Holy hell. more than one chance? Right. How many chances okay. do you give somebody, you know? Because I all know right, people, right, right. you know, they give them one shot, and when they, for whatever reason, they they do something, and then all of a sudden they never want to battle with this guy again. And I don't know if that's fair. You know, any given day somebody could have an off day. So I just am curious, you know, do you give these guys more than one shot? You know, what's your what's your criteria for getting people into your crew? Do you, uh, you know, do you, do you fill out an application? Do you give them their resume? Or, uh, you know, what do you, what do we got to do here? Are we doing interviews on the water? What's going on? Uh, so I just like your guys' input, and uh, thanks again. <laughs> all right. First of all, first of all, does that guy sound like, like a Canadian Joe Pesci, or is it just me? <laughs> I can decide if it was Canadian or Baltimore. All right. <laughs> The second thing is, okay, I think we've learned a lot with this first voicemail. The first the first lesson is when you guys call in, let's collect your thoughts a little bit and get it down to a sentence or two. Yeah, that was All that right. could have been a could have been a fifteen second question. <laughs> right. I mean he had some legitimate questions in there. There's no question. Anyway. So what do you guys think? How do you get you know, how does it work to bring some how does it happen if you got three or four guys you paddle with all the time and you bring in a fifth? How does that person make it in? You see, that doesn't. I, listen, I, well, I think we're in a, we're all three of us are in an unusual situation because we've been paddling since we were little kids, and we've cultivated a a name for ourselves and a group of paddlers with the same mindset. And we, I think, we're really fortunate. But can you imagine learning to paddle like twenty and having to to get get a group of people to paddle with on a regular basis? You know what I mean? And avoid all the nonsense. You know. Oh, and there is so much nonsense. I mean, like the people I paddle with, you know, I mean, I, when we go to paddle, it's pretty clear we're not bringing anyone else that we that's not part of the inner circle, right? I mean, are you guys the same way? It depends unless on where they I'm... Are a, unless they're a complete known quantity. I mean, unless there is no question they're a known quantity. Especially if you're going somewhere like serious whitewater. Geltman, you're looking... Nonplussed. No, it's just it's like you're saying. It's just so far from my experience. It's like when he's like, how, when you were, one of you guys was like, how do you bring in like a fifth? And I'm like, once I get to one other person, I stop asking. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's like if you show up, like like if you're five minutes late, it's like that's like I'm not going to call you again for a month, right? You know, it's like if I uh, just I'm not. I mean, I don't know. It's like, I feel like this is a question about like adult social dynamics. Like, I don't, I don't really like, I mean, I feel like this person must know the answer to that question. It's like, if that's your best option, then you put up with it. And if it's not your best option, you move on down the list. Like, I don't know what else to say, you know? Do we have any value to offer this person? (laughs) (laughs) Just quit, dude. Just give up your stuff, sell it, get out. You're never going to make it. I think you kind of got to make your own crew. What do you guys yeah, think I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I feel like there has to, you have to take control. You know what I mean? You cannot just let things happen. You know, you have to paddle with people with a like, a like mindset as well. Yeah. And when you're in that group with the like mindset, it's, it's so much fun. I mean, everybody's more confident. You're just all on the same pages. You can do the hand signals, the river signals. You can look at facial expressions. There are definitely people out there who look at paddling as like, a quote unquote hall pass where they're going out. They're just hanging out with their buds. They're going to drink. 
they're going to stick around. You know what I mean? Instead of doing three laps, they're going to do one with a lot of socializing, which is fine, but not my scene at all. Right. And so like, that's what, I mean, that's what I mean. Like when I, I have to find those, those are the people I have to paddle with this similar mindset, you know? Yeah, totally. It's like, you just, yeah. And it's like, if, the other, you know, like it's like you're saying, there's nothing wrong with that. It's like if that's how you want to spend your Sunday, it's just like right. hanging out with your buddies, dicking around, drinking beer in the parking lot. Like, that's fine. That's your crew. But it's like, and like if you have John Weld being like, like when are we going? Like, put your fucking clothes on, let's go. <laughs> like you're gonna be like, dude, leave me alone. <laughs> you know, it's like you got to find your crew who's on your program, and that's what you need. To me, that's such. To me, that's such an integral part of the sport, though. For me personally. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm weird about that. No, I agree a hundred percent. But I mean, how do you? How did you find your crew? I I mean I I don't know. You just I I think what I, I don't know. Yeah, it just happens, right? You move to the best place for kayaking in the world, and you selectively cultivate that that vibe. You, just, you put in the hours. <laughs> it's like the guy sits sits on the bank at Pipeline and waits to get in the lineup and he sits at the far edge of it and slowly over the years works his way into the lineup, you know? Well, thank you for the voicemail. We have absolutely nothing to offer. That's right. Um, We've gone around sort of line completely. <laughs> All right, let's move on here. Um, Josh Nielsen. Hey guys, love the show. <clears throat> on the one I listened to today, you said you love the Theracane. I first saw one in Yonton's van back in 2006 and have used it ever since. But then this thing called the Shaktai mat came out. I broke my back in Norway kayaking a few years back and this thing is legit. Best thing for a kayaker's back ever. I have the medium one and it takes uh, back pain away straight away. I think everyone in O'Carry Falls has one now. Anyways, keep it up. Cheers. So, Lewis, did you order one of these things? Yes, dude. So one of the things that I think we all agree that we like to do here on Hand Refractor is stereotype people based on where they live. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, everyone in New Zealand is hard as fuck and constantly doing crazy things and is also, as a result, constantly injured. And I don't know Josh, but I know that he's a badass paddler and broken his back and on his recommendation and his word that everyone in Okira Falls is on top of it I ordered this product and it arrived while I was in DC I fired it up last night for like 20 minutes and initial results are positive but I'm looking forward to experimenting with it some more this thing is like it's like a probably an inch thick kind of like cushion like a pad with a whole bunch of things stuck on the top that look like the bottom of like soft golf spikes. So you get like this kind of like bed of nails effect. Like when you first lay on it, it's like, it's pretty painful. And then it seems like the painfulness goes away after a few minutes and then all your muscles start relaxing. And I fell asleep on it last night, but yeah, just like on the recommendation of Josh Nielsen, I bought this thing. Like they're made in New Zealand. Like it was, 65 bucks kiwi which is probably like 18 dollars us or something (laughs) (laughs) well don't think we Um, don't listen to our but i will give you guys a full a full review on this thing in short order but yeah thanks josh sweet (laughs) sweet i want one now too uh moving on it seems promising this comes at us from uh owen callahan 
Um, okay, longer and more F's offset, got it. This is what Owen says. Um, what about some of the other design features? He's talking about paddlers, uh, about paddles here. <coughs> Straight shaft versus bent, flex, carbon, fiberglass, wood, foam core, blade shape. I always felt more stable on shorter, wider playboating blades, but there's got to be a reason river running blades are shaped the way they are. Surely you have some opinions about these factors too, Owen. Okay. I like this one. Uh, let's start with bent shaft versus straight shaft. What are you guys' thoughts there? I use a bent shaft, but I don't think there's any good reason for it. Straight shaft all the way. Straight yeah. shaft all the way. I, yeah, used, I, 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 honestly, I, used, yeah. I used a bent shaft for probably almost 10 years when I was racing slalom. But the only reason I did that was that older guys who were faster than me used it. And so I just did what they did. But it's stupid. It. Like the old designs, like especially the ones like AT uses, like they take away your extension. They make no sense. It it makes the paddle heavier. It makes the paddle weaker. If you break that paddle and have to use a breakdown and it's a straight shaft, you're going to be hating life. Like if you legitimately have some sort of weird carpal tunnel issue or something and you want to try it to help alleviate that, like try it. But like seriously, if you don't absolutely have to use one of those bench shafts, like just don't do it. Blade types. Any thoughts there? I would say go with Shogun or Adachi. Can't go wrong with either one of those two. Get Galasport Manix. Galasport Manix are the nicest feeling whitewater blades you can treat yourself to but, until but, they break. But, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, they're pretty delicate, right? I mean, help me out here. I mean, that's all I've used. It's all. Gerd uses, Annie Ole uses them, Isaac uses them. I mean, they feel the best. Like, if what you want is to get a cheap paddle that you can, you know, like, pry boulders up with, like, yeah, get something cheap and fiberglass. But if you want something that feels the best. Is that a foam core, bla foam core blade? Yeah, but it's thin. So it's a thin foam. So it's, it's, it's thicker, obviously, than like a carbon blade. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more like it fares in that ridge on the back, so it, it feathers a little more sensitively. Like, I think those ones that just have the big ridge on the back and then no foam core, I feel like they, they don't feather quite as nice. I'm a big fan of foam core. I love my Adachi. So I think I just think foam core has a, a more stable purchase. It doesn't uh, flutter around in the water as much. I'm not sure that's the core as, as much as the blade shape, but yeah, you could be right. Um, carbon fiberglass wood, carbon, carbon. <laughs> you can't go wrong with carbon. I think that about sums it up there. So you want a straight shaft, foam core, carbon blade, um, and you're ready to rock. And if you want to be a if you want to be a uh, star fucker, get a Galasport Manix. Yeah, exactly. If you're willing to <laughs> <laughs> you treat yourself, man, I mean, you can get down the river with, you know, a whole lot of things. But if you want, just, I'm just, I just like the working man's paddle, you know, you want, $500 you want... Odachi. That's all I need. <laughs> <laughs> simple man, simple needs. <laughs> uh, okay. Moving on. Jim Clark, Jim Clark raves on uh, Nicole. He says, Hey guys, I'm relatively new to listener to the Hammer Factor, but really enjoying the show. On a recent business trip to Europe, I binge listened to many previous episodes, including episode one, 
uh, which seems to highlight the excellent decision in bringing in Lewis into the conversation. Uh, work and family keeps me pretty busy, so I don't get much time to go paddling, but Hammer Factor helps me feel connected to the whitewater paddling community, which in many ways is that low-life subculture of dirtbags, geezers, and hotshots to which I most identify myself. I was really impressed by the range of both the depth and breadth of topics covered in episode 48. Before even getting to your guests, you covered stories from people achieving... Uh, <laughs> Uh, beatitude in the divine state of Colorado <laughs> to the deeply. <laughs> I got beatitude. a lot of I got a lot of comments like aside from the show on that. A lot of people calling me about that. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes on to talk about the dragonfly, and as always, there's something in there with Valley Mill. And then he hi- uh, bold bold lettering. What I thought was the best story from the episode was how your guest Nicole Mansfield navigated her life choices and the career limitations of the sport to do what she loves most which is to paddle rivers. It was intriguing to hear her tale about the choices she made that allowed her to grow skills and spend as much time possible kayaking and how her passion in kayaking evolved from play boating to actual river running and experiencing the nature and beauty of places where rivers run. Please give many thanks to Nicole for being open to Wells Grilling and through that process to give us her story. Unfortunately, whitewater paddling supports very limited career opportunities, so these are not life choices for many people. But for every legend, there is a story. It was great to hear. Jim Clark. There you go. Yeah. No, I was in, I, I'm, I'm always interested in people who can paddle, you know, 300 days a year into their 30s. You know, that's, that's always interesting to me. Oh, that's super rad. Great, great <clears throat> email there. Love that one. Uh, moving on, Derek Olds. Derek says, I'm on the 828 hate train. Why on earth would anyone <laughs> want to go anywhere but Hood River to kayak? Thanks, Derek. Lewis, any? <laughs> I just got to be clear any that I'm not on the 828 hate train. I just like <laughs> giving John Grace a hard time. No, no, I just no, like no, 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 no. John Grace a hard time, and I like rivalries, and I just – like talking shit, but if All you right. like in North Carolina, that's that's great for you, and I I'm, I'm happy that you're happy. <laughs> okay, here's a really good one from uh, Jeremy Locks. Uh, your interview with Nicole Mansfield, fond memories of the per- Piranha Van. I heard plenty of shark versus bear discussions too. We're going to get to that in depth here in a little bit. We are so running behind right now. Um, my time in Orange Bitch was. Um, Usually only the two weeks or so around Reno Riverfest, but I feel the need to share my low point. Um, we has wrapped up in Re- Reno and headed to California for a couple weeks of creaking. The first day was cold and rainy as we headed to Upper Middle Consumers. I was driving as we descended the rough takeout road, and as I crossed the dish, we heard a loud crack. Before the van left Asheville that spring, the windshield had been replaced, and it hadn't adhered properly. A little flex was all it took to break the windshield. Dim shits isn't deterred by such minor setbacks. We still made it to the river, put on in the rain, turned to howling snow. Challenging conditions for sure. I think we're all pretty beat down by the time we made it off the river and walked two miles up the hill from the takeout because we had one vehicle at the bottom. Enough for all the boats, but not the people. By the time we made it to town, there was rain running down the inside of the badly spidered windshield and a gap big enough to fit a few fingers through. By the time we found an auto glass place, we were worried a hard stop would forcefully remove the windshield from the van completely. We spent most of the next day posted up in the parking lot while the windshield got replaced, drying everything we owned, outfitting boats. I boiled some water and pounded the piton out of the bow of my burn, etc. It was pretty inauspicious 
<clears throat> an auspicious start to the trip, and it was probably around that time I started questioning whether or not being a full-time dirtbag kayaker was a good idea. Such life decisions bring to my second point. I'm just going to go ahead and invite myself on the show and talk about why a company only molding whitewater boats will be financially viable, but is a dumb idea anyway, why the RIMCON model isn't actually a thing, or isn't just one thing when it comes to this discussion, and set the record straight about my lack of a 40-hour week nursing career, as well put it. <laughs> Believe it or not, Black Fly is my full-time job. Jeremy Locks. Well, I'm glad he called me out on that. Not, this is, I agree 100% we have to have him on the show. He'll be great. Yeah, right. I got to hear this. I want to hear the whole thing. I'm fascinated. Guys, we're not going to be able to get through all these. Um, what more should we touch on here? Fred Morrison. You want to hear? Let, let's go in. Yeah, let's do the rest of the voicemails because, uh, I mean, come on. We got uh. voicemail. <laughs> <laughs> let's, do, let's do Fred and let's move on. Yeah, right, let's do Fred, one voicemail. Okay. Yeah. This is uh, coming out from Fred Morrison. Throw that right to you, John. <clears throat> well, I could spend the next two hours talking about this. Um, all right, so let's 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 identify uh, something we call catastrophic failure, right? In a, in a waterproof breathing laminate, that's where the laminate just falls apart, um, and water comes right through the fabric. Uh, and I think there's a notion out there in the paddle sports world that this actually happens all the time. And, and the truth is, if this is a, a well-made dry suit, um, you know, from a reputable company, you just do not get catastrophic failure. It just doesn't happen. Um, you know, and, and if there's no catastrophic failure, the suit should last indefinitely, basically. It should be theoretically dry indefinitely. Um, the, the problem that people have with dry suits – First of all, I mean, the biggest problem people have with dry suits basically is sweat. They start to sweat inside of these things and they're convinced it's leaking um, or they're getting water through the gaskets because latex gaskets are, you know, they're, they're not perfect. Um, when a suit's brand new and you have DWR coating on it and the water's not soaking into the shell of the jacket uh, or the suit, the suit breathes reasonably well. It's not great. It breathes reasonably well. 
Um, as soon as the DWR is gone, the, the shell starts to wet out. Uh, and, the, and the outside of the suit gets soaking wet, and these things just do not breathe very well. And there's just no way for the suit to get rid of all the moisture that's being generated inside of these suits. And this leads people to be convinced that their suits are leaking. Um, that's not to say you can't get a hole in a suit or the feet won't wear out, um, or like Fred said, puncture a hole in it. All these little cuts and abrasions, all these things are really minor, easy things to fix. Um, so... All things all things considered, your dry suit, if it's from a well-made company using good fabric and it's constructed properly, should last, like I said, indefinitely, barring a couple really, really stupid mistakes you could make, like filling the suit with dirt and gravel and grinding the laminate and destroying it that way, or letting it get mildewy and just having mildew run rampant inside a suit and ruining it that way. Um, but beyond that, they should last a long time. But the DWR thing's a real problem because DWR coatings are getting – the, the old school DWRs, which lasted for a couple of years, they're environmentally awful and they're, they're illegal in most developed countries in the world now. So the DWRs we're having right now, uh, we use right now are pretty, they're a lot weaker than they used to be. And these shells, these dry suits are wetting out a lot sooner uh, than they used to. Um, I, we do repairs for all brands of dry suits at IR. I'm not going to make this an IR ad, so I'll use another example. We get, you know, we get Kokotat suits in, and Kokotat's a very reputable manufacturer. They make a great product, and people say they are convinced the suit is leaking to the fabric, and it's not. It's just not. Um, if you think your suit's leaking to the fabric, for one thing, you can look at it. If it's peeling apart in the armpit, and like the, that's where you use this thing start, and the fabric's actually disintegrating, and you look in the inside, and the white lamina is disintegrating on the inside, and the tape's peeling off, and the tree coat's peeling off, you might have catastrophic failure. But the chance of seeing this in a Kokotet garment is basically zero. Um, doesn't mean you have some holes in that can't be patched, but the, the water's just not leaking through the suit. It's just not. Um, the, the only thing you can do at this point is try and replenish DWR and, and try and get that suit to beat up water again. Um, it, it, and then also, you know, understand that sweat's just going to be a factor. If you want to test this on your own, what you can do is put your suit on, get in some water, you know, hold your head and your, your arms out of the water, like your gaskets and just sit there with a, like a sweatsuit on underneath it. And the suit should be perfectly dry. If the, if you sit in the water for 10 minutes and you're perfectly dry and you get out, your suit's not leaking right through the fabric and you can do this to test yourself. Um, but you know, the problem is people buy a thousand dollar dry suits and they have very, very, very high and sometimes very unrealistic expectations about what dry means. You know, you just cannot be completely dry in a dry suit and go kayaking all day and, and be sweating like crazy. That's just not possible. I mean, you can be pretty darn close and these things are pretty remarkable in a lot of ways, but being bone dry after every day of paddling is not really possible. You guys want to? When you say like last indefinitely, like how many days is that? Like 500 days, like a thousand days. Uh, we've like, we're at a point, I mean, I, the, the good manufacturers right now are at a point where I have not seen catastrophic fabric failure on any modern well-made dry suit in years and years and years. I see tears and holes, which are really usually very obvious and very easy to patch. It take a second to patch, you know, um, and your feet, you know, booties will wear out too. Of course, you know if you if you grind dirt through them long enough, they'll wear out as well. But the the last, I mean, you will pressure test suits, and they're they're perfectly dry. I mean, they're bone dry, you know. Um, so, I, and like again, like I don't know, like the the Kokotat example. Like, yeah. I feel like every time I see somebody with a Kokotat dry suit, they've sent it back to get it repaired a bunch of times. Yeah, and like the inside of the thing looks like it has measles because eight thousand pinholes have gotten replaced. Is that from the laminate falling apart? Is that from like walking through briars? Like, no, why, why that's actually a difficult thing. I, I don't want to. I've been very careful not to make I you know this podcast a sales tool for IR. So I'm going to 
I'm going to tread carefully in that subject, and I probably should have someone from Cocotec come on and explain that, or from Gore-Tex explain that that phenomena. But by and large, those that problem you're mentioning right there is not catastrophic failure. You know, and those patches are manageable for the most part. Um, I will say that, that that particular breed of of repair work is 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 a is a gore is a Gore-Tex thing though. Um, but no, I'm not trash talking Gore. I don't want to hear all the hate from the people. Um, you know, Gore's a, Gore's a, a great fabric, as we all know. Well, I think they should all last longer, personally. But I would be, <laughs> I do want to say the, the thing is, is we get we get you wouldn't believe. I mean, we, we get countless brands of dry, all different kinds of brands of dry suits, and, and the good ones. I'm not going to mention names, but the good ones come in, and the people will be like, "It's leaking to the fabric," and it's not. And it's a, it's a tricky situation because you have to explain to these people it's not. And they are convinced that the fabric is leaking right through, is soaking right through the fabric. Um, but you pressure test these things. You put them under high pressure and, and they don't, there's, not, there's no leaks, you know. And then you have to explain this to a customer. And they very, I mean, they can, they can be angry about it, you know, understandably because they spend a lot of time on this, their money on this thing, you know. Well, one point I want to touch on with Fred's voicemail is comparing ski gear and paddling gear. And- oh, no comparison. Ski gear is to such an unbelievably lower tolerance of care. If we made anything, anything at paddle sports as carelessly as any of the very best ski wear, we would be eviscerated. And anybody who goes out making paddling gear using the same materials, the same technology, and same taping as used in the very finest alpine gear will be eviscerated. There's nothing as brutal on a waterproof breathable garment as kayaking. There's no comparison. I mean, when you're out skiing, None. you're never like hiking through Devil's Club and every Patagonia jacket I've ever owned leaks like a sieve after a year. Every single one. Moving on, we have a lot of good. Uh, check out the, uh, the the show notes. I'll put the other listener mail in there, or we'll get to them on. Um, you know, I'll play the voicemails from <laughs> "Fuck You, Billy Mullins," <laughs> all sorts of. <laughs> Other stuff out there. We've got some requests for anonymous boat review guy. Uh, Rahul continues his training for the Stikin. On and on and on. We love the listener mail. It really, uh, I don't know. It's one of my favorite parts of this whole show. But moving on, we had um, Andrew Holcomb and the French Broad River Academy, um, the school where Andrew is the principal, do a report and... I mean, would it be a statistics report? What would you call that analysis that we got? I think the question we posed was, could you look at the river? Could you look at the data from the green races in the years past and, and come up with an, uh, uh, an estimation as to when the four minute mark would be broken in the green race? Yeah. And so there's a couple, there's a couple somewhat knowable factors in there. And, you, you know, yeah. um, and so Andrew's school, you know, his students put, you know, put a uh, pencil to paper and came up with an answer. However, we felt like I think we needed to hand this off to Hammer Factor's own in-house data miner and statistician, Kenny Unser. Kenny Unser is also um, the uh, organizer for the King of the King of New York. Um, Kenny, are you there? And welcome to the Hammer Factor. Yeah. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi, Kenny. So, Sorry. Kenny, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So I'm a statistician. I live in um, Connecticut, just outside New York City. Um, my home river is probably the Hudson River. I do a lot of circumnavigations around the city, uh, organize the Whitewater King in New York and the Beaver River Festival, um, and I do a lot of statistics. Okay, killer. So did you take a look at the data from the, uh, from the crew there at French Broad River Academy? What did you think and, uh, and what have you come up with? 
Sure. So I, I took a look and, and I want to give credit to uh, Mr. Schroeder, who's the math teacher of the eighth grade class there at the French Broad River Academy. Um, and those are the guys that, um, you know, applied some of the math they're learning to real world situations and took a look at the green race to answer some of your questions. Okay. Um, so um, I looked over their analysis and their primary data source was looking at the winning times from 1996 to 2017. Um, and then they also came up with um, a proxy for river level where they looked at three week uh, periods between October 20th and November 11th for each year. Um, and they cited a bunch of technology advancements, um, like the, the green boat in 2006 and some of the other, uh, liquid logic iterations of race boats, as well as the Werner Odachi. Um, and they tried to consider this all in, um, making forecasts, um, of when the green race is going to break the four minute barrier, um, as well as to answer some questions about how, uh, river level might affect that prediction. Um, and then to answer the question about, um, you know, what is the limit as to how fast somebody might be able to race the Green River? So before we go any farther, is it safe to say that after you've given, shown your, your, your work here that we don't need to have a Green Race anymore? That this will be effectively <laughs> as good as a Green, like a, like a virtual Green Race, if you will? Um, I believe so. And I've done some analysis where I think that I can pretty authoritatively just rank everybody who's ever raced the green and, um, you know, tell you who would win if we had the race this year. This is wonderful. This is probably the best thing we've ever done as a show. Okay. First, Kenny, can you, <laughs> can you sum up the results from the, um, from the, from the French Broad River Academy crew? Sure. So, um, the first thing that they looked at was to look at when the winning green race time is going to drop below four minutes. Um, and to do this, they took the historical winning times and tried to fit various lines or curves through those data points. Um, and then they can extend those curves and uh, try to forecast what the future winning times would be, along with a range of uncertainty. So in doing that, um, I was very surprised to see, um, and I can validate, um, that the progression of times over the last 22 years is very linear. Um, and that was a surprise to me because I would have expected to see early leaps um, as racers settled on lines and pacing strategies and boat designs and things like that. Um, where in recent years, we would see more of a struggle for minor incremental gains. Um, but instead, we see very steady progress over 22 years. Okay. And so what year did they predict that four minutes would be broken? Um, so using that linear regression, which was a really great fit to the historical data, um, they're predicting that that barrier will be broken in 2018 um, and as late as 2020, given some allowances for the uncertainty of their prediction. Um, but then they applied some other curves um, where they sort of looked for that exponential um, curve that I was expecting to see. Um, and surprisingly, that exponential curve really didn't ha have much of a curve. It was it was pretty flat. Um, 
and it only fit marginally better than just drawing a straight line through the data points. Um, but that their exponential models predicted the four-minute barrier is going to be broken a little later um, in either 2019 or 2020, um, and as late as 2024. Um, and yeah, they ran one other model that predicts that the barrier will be broken as late as 2024. Hmm. Okay, and then uh, what did you come up with? Right, let's just answer this once and for all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tired of waiting. Uh, well, <laughs> I took a look over their math, um, and I think that their consensus really is that it's going to be broken sometime between, um, you know, in the next three years or as late as 2024. So, uh, well, that's a great academic achievement. Um, I don't think that it's going to settle the matter um, like you guys are going to want. So um, let me talk a little bit about, let me first kind of um, conclude what they discovered and then I'll go on to how I kind of extended their analysis. Um, they, they also looked at um, the winning time versus rainfall um, and they didn't find a strong correlation. Um, and I also just looking over their rainfall data um, don't agree that it's a good proxy for river level. Uh, so, for example, uh, in 2004, which was the highest level ever at Green Race, um, they recorded the 10th highest rainfall of all of the Green Races. So I, I don't think that um, looking at rainfall was a particularly uh, effective method of um, looking at the river level on race day. Um, but another aspect to what they did was that they tried to forecast um, how fast can the green race be run, um, which was a question that you had asked on a prior show. Um, and so what they did here was they looked for, in the case where they had their curved models, where that shape of the curve would flatten out towards a limit in the future. And they, their models showed very different results with their exponential model predicting that the green race can only be run as fast as three, uh, three minutes, 13 seconds, and that'll be in 2075, um, where their polynomial model shows a limit of 358 in 2029. So, um, a pretty big, okay. yeah, so a pretty big difference there. Um, I'm inclined to accept their math. Um, but I think that the current trend line is so linear that it might be a little early in the green race's history to start observing a leveling off of race times. Um, I have some questions about that polynomial model that predicted 358. Um, so I think that that exponential model um, predicting 313 in 2075 uh, might be a better guess. Um, but you know, doing a prediction 50 years into the future um, is pretty speculative. Um, I didn't try to replicate that particular analysis, and I tried to focus instead on that four-minute barrier and extending the research into some new areas of inquiry. Okay, let's hear about let's hear about that. Uh, sure. So I reached out to Chris Bell. Um, he's maintained a pretty rich database of green race results um, through 2015, uh, when I guess he uh, had a web server crash and lost some data. Um, but he was able to send me some of the raw spreadsheets that he had, um, and I was able to clean them up and augment them with uh, data from 2016 and 2017. Um, so some of the things that I did there was I took, um, I used fuzzy matching logic um, so that I could align names across the different years and build an athlete database. Um, <laughs> and then I, then I did something similar with boat models where I applied today's definition 
of long and short boat to the historic results so that I could look at past races through the lens of today's class divisions. Hmm. Um, and then something I found in Chris Bell's data was that he had athlete ages from 2014 and 2015. Uh, so for racers that competed in those years, I was able to calculate their ages um, at all of the races that they participated in. Hmm. Um, oh, right. And, and then I went on to derive some additional information about each race result, uh, including how many years of experience the athlete had and how they performed in prior races. Okay, so we're getting ready to find out what year the four-minute barrier will be broken, what boat, what paddler, and how old they're going to be. Yeah, yeah, I can give you that information. Okay, that's what we're looking um, for. Yeah, but first I'm going to walk you through some other stuff. So um, uh, in addition to Chris Bell's data, um, I have some, uh, I, I just got some really anecdotal information about water level in the past. Um, I reached out to uh, John Pilson and, and to you, John Grace, uh, to um, get sort of a sense of when there were high water years and low water years and, and such things. So I tried to factor that in. Um, and then I, I took that list of technology improvements that the French Broad River, River Academy had documented and tried to make some considerations for, uh, you know, race-specific longboat designs. Um, and then I performed an analysis. So to kind of start with it, I'll give you some statistics about the green race. Hmm. Um, so there's been uh, 22 years of green races, um, and there have been 2,208 race results, and that includes um, when athletes raced in multiple classes. 2,200, um, okay. Um, and then there were 729 unique athletes that have raced in the green race, hmm. um, and they've, wow. used, they've used over 150 boat models. Hmm. That is badass. I didn't even know there were 150 <laughs> boat models, right? Um, and that's probably a low estimate because in some of the recent years, I don't have the actual boat model information. Hmm. Um, so uh, the first part of the analysis that I did was to uh, try to get a gauge on when the green race winning time will drop below four minutes. Uh, so I created a number of different models uh, with different curve fits. Um, and then I modified each of those models to consider the categorical water level data together and separately from information about technology advancements. Um, and I found that it was pretty challenging to effectively use technology and water level data. Um, I definitely think that race boats and water levels are factors in race times, um, but I think there are better tests of their impacts than looking at the historical green race data. Um, if, if I were to design a test, for example, to look at whether, you know, how different boats perform, I might want to do that over a short period of time with the same athletes versus trying to look at an athlete's performance year over year and to reduce that change in performance to just simply the equipment they're using. Um, they might have been working out. They might have been eating at 12 bones every day. So it, it was, it was kind of difficult for me to um, consider some of these things. But, but I, I made some attempts um, and, and looked at a lot of different models. So for water level, for example, um, I tried dropping results from 2004 and 2008, uh, which might kind of be considered outlier years. 2004 was a really high water year, and 2008 was the lowest water year on record. Um, and dropping these data points really had very little effect on my models. 
Um, whereas when I looked at boat technology, um, I, it was hard for me with the, as few data points as I had, um, you know, so considering that the, um, Thermoform Stinger has only been around for two years. That's not a lot of data to go on. Uh, so I really kind of kept the, the boats at a high level and looked at just the existence of race-specific longboat designs. And I used two methods to look at that. One where I considered all 22 years of data and then calculated a factor for the point in time when longboat designs uh, came into existence, the, the race-specific ones. Um, and then I looked at only the data for the 12 years that the race-specific longboat designs have existed. And in both cases, um, the, mod the basic models that I was modifying tended to show a slight, a slightly slower progression when I factored in race-specific boat designs. Um, so this isn't to say that longboats have slowed progress. Um, what it suggests is that longboats resulted in a level shift starting in 2006, um, and that this level shift would otherwise be attributed to the athletes and be factored across time as a more rapid rate of progression and not a one-time gain. So if, for example, we saw that an athlete improved 30 seconds year over year, and we ignored that they went from a short boat to a long boat, we might project that they're going to um, have a pretty big improvement the following year. But if we discount for that gain because of the equipment change, then we're going to sort of temper that prediction. Got it. Um, so generally considering um, race designs push my model predictions back one year. Um, and kind of the conclusion I reached is that um, most of the models that I built had the four minute barrier falling in either 2019 or 2020. Um, of course, the statistics show a predictive margin of error, but there was really good consensus suggesting 2019 or 2020. Um, to kind of settle from there, I had to overlay some expert judgment to arrive at the definitive answer. And that is? Um, well, I had to look at a few different things to sort of march towards that. Um, so one of the things I wanted to know is, um, when are athletes going to need to go sub four to just be competitive? Um, and so, um, you know, like, you know, eventually we're going to be sub four, but further into the future, if you don't go sub four, you're not going to be, um, able to even come into the top 10 or so. Um, so I looked at, um, you know, definitions of competitive. Um, so because of the change in the number of racers from year to year, a top 10 finish in 1996, when there were 16 racers, is tough to compare against a top 10 finish in 2017, when there are 160 racers. Uh, so to compare racers, I ranked athletes based on percentile. Um, so this is similar to how you were ranked in your high school graduating class with uh, deciles and such. Um, so in 1996, when Eric Young was in 10th place, he was in the 69th percentile versus in 2017, when, um, John, you, uh, placed 10th place, you were in the sixth percentile. Oh. <laughs> um, so I, I calculated <laughs> I calculated the cutoff time that a racer needed to have to appear in the top 10% of their class. And based off on this cutoff time, my models suggest that a racer will need to go sub four in order to place in the top 10% of racers in the 2029 green race. 
Okay, top 10 under four minutes. Um, so, and that's the top 10%. So my forecast shows that there's going to be 154 longboat racers in 2029. Um, and so in other words, to be in the top 15 in 2029, you're going to need to be sub four. Huh. All right. Well, let's, 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 let's break this down. I'm just going to go straight to the point here. What kayak is going to break four minutes? Um, so I, 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 uh, I picked a person who's going to win and I think we'll know, you know, what kayak they'll probably be in. Um, so again, I didn't have a good, um, a good way of, uh, of using the actual boats to, to make the forecast, but more, I looked at the racer. So what I did was I looked at the profile of a competitive green racer. Um, and so I looked at, um, I would have loved to have more information here. Things like how far people live from the green, how long they've been paddling, what kind of length and offset they're using, um, any kind of information I could get about their smoking, drinking, or drug use, their relationship status, presence of children, participation in CrossFit. Um, I didn't have a lot of that information at hand. Um, so what I did have was, was age and experience. Um, so I was able to look at the number of years racing the green and for around a third of the racers, I was able to calculate age on race day. Um, so this allowed me to look at how age and experience impact race times. Um, so in 2014 and 2015, the average age of a racer in the men's longboat class was 27 to 29 with a median age of 27. Um, but if we just look at the top 10% of those competitors um, in that men's longboat class, we see that age skews younger. And the typical racer will uh, have an average age of 25 to 27 with a median of 26. So in terms of experience, uh, in 2017, the average longboat racer had appeared in the longboat class around four times. Um, but those in the top 10% had an average of seven longboat appearances under their belt. Um, so these figures sort of suggest that the average competitive green racer in the men's longboat class is going to be in their mid twenties and have been competing in the green race throughout their twenties. Okay. All right. So, so to take a deeper look at the life cycle of a green race athlete. <laughs> so, so Clay White is out. That's what I'm, t- that's what I'm gathering so far. Okay. I just want to know what, what John Weld, what you're planning on doing with this information. <laughs> How are you going to incorporate this into your training? Well, these people are customers. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I use I use two measures of peak performance to sort of study the life cycle of a green race. Um, and one would be when did that athlete reach their personal best race time? Um, and the next one was when the athlete, when did the athlete achieve their best race result based on percentile? Um, so an example here would be Pat Keller's 406 second place finish in 2017 at age 32. It's his personal best time. However, his first place finish in 2013 at age 28 is his best result based on percentile. So the percentile ranking takes into account the size of the competitive field and allows you to compare performance across years as the competition grows and winning times decrease. 
Um, I like to think of the percentile ranking as the relevancy metric. So if times are reducing at a rate of three seconds per year, you need to improve at a, at least three seconds each year to just maintain your relevancy in successive green races. Oh, that's depressing. Uh, <laughs> So I took a look at some senior green racers from the past to illustrate the trajectory of the racing careers. Um, and, and first oh, I go. looked at, at Jason Hale. Uh, <laughs> so Jason Hale has 20 career races, uh, the most of any green racer. Um, and his best time of a 4.48 was in 2006 at age 33. Um, but if we, if we use that relevancy metric... Jason peaked in relevancy back in 1998 when he was 25 <laughs> years old. <laughs> okay. You're going to get an angry call from Jason. <laughs> so, uh, so we all face a future of declining uh, relevancy. Uh, I, may, I may just cut this interview off right now. No answer. Uh, we'll, we'll we haven't learned anything. I know. Uh, Sure the next racer I looked at was the winningest green racer, uh, Tommy Hillicky. He has six career wins and 19 appearances. Uh, his best time was at the age of 40, just this year with a 4.27. Um, but by my calculations, he peaked in relevancy in 2001 at age 24. Um, you know, Tommy won the green race four times after 2001, including 2005 at the age of 28, but he faced fewer competitors in those years. Um, where Andrew Holcomb, um, who has two record setting wins in nine races, he achieved his best time and percentile the same year in 2009 at age 28. Mm, that was um, 2018. That was a big year. Um, and, um, and then, uh, so John, uh, Grace, you, you have 17 career races. Um, your best time was a 423 in 2012. Um, but you peaked in relevancy later than others, but at the age of 35 in 2010 with a 438. 438. Um, mm. uh, um, and then just to, you know, call out another racer, um, Russ Sturges peaked at 31 with his 72nd place finish of 506. <laughs> <laughs> Green race legend, Russ Sturgis. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so based on these observations, I used a technique called logistic regression to see how age groups correlate with whether racers are improving both their times and their relevancy. Um, and I discovered that racers in general improve their time through their late 20s. But starting at age 30, I begin to see a negative correlation between age and personal best race times. Um, but I, I observe a negative correlation of the personal best percentile, that relevancy metric. I see that turn earlier, starting at the age of 26. So even though athletes may still seem, see slight improvements in their race times into their late 20s and 30s, um, these improvements are generally not enough to keep pace with the overall competitive pool. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, so let's... <laughs> Let's lay it out. Who is it? <laughs> so it happen? so I've, I was sharing some of this information with uh, Chris Grotmans, who, um, by the way, peaked in relevancy 10 years ago at the age of 23. 
Um, <laughs> I knew that. And that's why that's why I keep telling Chris that. <laughs> and and he had this idea of doing a, a greatest of all time analysis. So if all the former green race winners were to compete in their prime, who would win? Um, and so having looked at when each athlete peaked in performance, I needed to find ways to compare these athletes when they were in their prime. Um, so Tommy Hilke, he has the most wins at six. He's broken the course record three times. He has the longest winning streak with five wins in a row from 2001 to 2005. And he has the longest winning career with wins seven years apart. Um, Mike Dawson and Clay Wright, they tie for holding the longest course record at four years. Um, Mike Dawson has won both times he competed. So he has the best average percentile, followed with Isaac Levinson and Dane Jackson, um, which make them the most consistent racers. Um, but the question I had is, um, which winners faced the toughest competition when earning their victories? So for each green race, I wanted to look at how stiff the competition was among the top 10. Um, my thinking is that the tighter the times among the top 10, the tougher the win. So I used the standard deviation across the top 10 to determine the years where the winner had the most competition from the top 10 finishers. Um, the hardest competition by this measure was in 2015 when Dane and Eric DeGeele tied for first. Um, so based on this criteria, um, where the greatest of all time would be a repeat winner with the, that face the hardest competition. I believe that all the past green racers um, were to race uh, today in their prime. The podium would be Mike Dawson, Eric DeGeel, and Andrew Holcomb. Oh, Who would be first? Uh, Mike Dawson. Okay. Interesting. Hmm. Um, so... Um, so I started to think about, you know, if those guys are the greatest all of all time, who are the next generation of top green racers? Um, so if the Calcutta existed, which it obviously never has, um, and we were looking for athletes poised to make the biggest improvements, um, I'd look for paddlers in their late teens and early 20s that are already posting decent times. Um, so some examples of the up-and-comers might be people like Alec Voorhees or uh, Bernie Engelman. Uh, both of these guys are going to be 21 at this year's Green Race. Um, they're building experience and have some good years ahead of them. And while they may not reach their racing prime in time to go sub four first, both are currently posting times in the 420s, um, and I'd expect they'd make strides towards the four-minute mark in coming years. Oh, very interesting. So you're saying uh, it's going to be Bernie or... So Alec Voorhees, so those guys, those we, I think we can definitely see some improvements from those guys, but I don't think they're going to be the first to go sub four. Um, and some other, um, you know, solid Calcutta bets would be uh, the Long Creek boys. Um, I think that they're solid Gangsta. candidates to be, uh, you know, future sub four gangsters. Um, mm -hmm. So Holt McWirt is going to be 19 this year and Hunter Cooper is going to be 20. Um, they've got a lot of runway ahead of them. Um, they've posted some solid times as teenagers, um, and will have lots of green race experience when they reach their mid twenties. Uh, Isaac Hull is another guy to watch. Uh, he's going to be 16 at this year's green race. Uh, he currently has a best time of 4:41, So he's already faster than uh, former green race champions, Clay Wright and Jason Hale. And he has two years of green race experience. Uh, 
um, and 10 years before he should reach his peak relevancy. So it's going to be Isaac? Uh, well, I think he's, he, he's not going to quite be, uh, he's, he's not going to quite get there by the time it gets broken. Okay, so, okay. um, you know, looking at some more borderline Calcutta bets, um, you know, Mike Ferraro, he's going to be, uh, 23 this year. He's a great paddler and I know he's been charging, um, and he's got a solid best time of 425 and three, four good years left. Um, but I think he needs to close more distance on the top guys than he might be able to before he hits his peak percentiles. So Mike's out. Um, yeah, and I'd say some more marginal Calcutta bets would be people like Dylan McKinney. He's going to be 24 at this year's green race. Uh, he's, he's entering his prime uh, racing years. His best time of 427, I think, leaves him with just too much distance to close before odds suggest he'll peak in relevancy. Um, and, and this next one I think is going to break Weld's heart. Um, mm. America, America's heartthrob, uh, Ian Van Winger. Ooh. He's, he's bouncing against his peak relevancy. Mm. He's going to be 26. He's, he's got a best out. time. He's got his best time of 422. He might pick up a, a few seconds in coming years, but I think we're going to be watching his racing career in decline. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, well, well, hang on. Weld and I have something we're going to add to this equation in yeah. a little bit, and we're going to have to have you come back. But anyway, continue right now. Right. So, uh, so uh, an example of just a bad Calcutta bet might be somebody like Daniel Stewart. He Ooh. peaked in 2013 at age 24 with a 433. He's going to be 29 at this year's green race. So things are just not looking good for him. Mm-mm. Um, you should just retire now. I, mean, I agree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's over. So, you know, being able to sort of look at athletes in this way, um, I was able to sort of zero in on just definitively who is going to be the first athlete to go sub four and exactly when it's going to happen. Drum roll. <laughs> okay. So. And the winner. <laughs> so when I looked at uh, my models and I was between 2019 and 2020 Jackson breaking the four minute barrier <laughs> so most, <laughs> most of my models show that uh, that it's going to be 2019 or 2020 but when I looked at the models that show this year's course record um, it sits right on the trend line so this is different than in the past when previous records like Dawson um, we, that would have exceeded predictions and it held for a while, but I think Eric's, uh, Eric DeGeele's course record from last year is sitting right where we'd expect it to be. And I think it's under greater threat than past course records. Um, so even when the models suggest 2020 over 2019, um, the times that I'm predicting for 2019 are sitting right at four minutes with the 2020 predictions sort of ducking clear under that. Um, so it's a close call, but I'm going to go with 2019 as being the year that um, the green race is going to go sub four. And uh, Eric DeGeele, he's going to be 37 this year. Pat Keller, he's going to be 33. Um, obviously, these guys are phenomenal athletes and they're currently bouncing against the four minute barrier. Um, I wouldn't count Pat or Eric out. But statistically speaking, the odds suggest they're going to have a harder time making gains than some of the younger guys out there. Um, so Dude, the, the obvious suspense choice, is killing me. You have to tell me. <laughs> the obvious choice is Dane Jackson. Um, I don't think. I don't think. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. 
We sat here for After half hours. All that you <laughs> told us it was day. <laughs> That's that. <laughs> I don't think we've seen peak Dane. It's a it's an obvious choice. He's going to be 25 at this year's Green Race. He's got eight career races and currently holds a top time of 4:13. He just certainly fits the profile of a green race athlete at the top of his career. Um, so I'm going to say Dane Jackson, 2019 at age 26 with a time of 3:59. Um, and and um, given that it's somewhat likely that he'll be seated first in 2019, um, on I would say that November 2nd, 2019. At 12.03.59 is when the green race four-minute barrier is going to fall. Well, there Grace and I are going to throw a little wrench at the system, but we're going to get to that in a little bit. Well, let's go ahead and throw the wrench in there right now because I'm not sure how this got brought up, but basically we're looking at – Wait, wait, hold, wait, hold on. So I was talking to this guy, and I'm not going to say his name because I don't know if he wants this disclosed. Let's just call him Roger. This guy's Roger. Name is Roger. He's out your way, Galvin. And he caught my ear the other day about – training these athletes who are quote unquote training and how he come, he came from a competitive sport background. And we were talking about the discrepancy between the, what training is and paddle sports and what training is in other sports and, and talking about how paddle sports could, you know, racers could better themselves. And he posed, he posed the, the, the idea that, uh, the, if we, we could, we should, uh, dope somebody, uh, you know, put them on a, on a, on a, on a you a know, doping um, regimen, a doping regimen. I, I have a real strong guess as to who you had this conversation with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm thinking, Roger. let's just call him Roger. Right. So what I'm thinking is what we'll do is we will find, we, we will seek out an anonymous, a person who, who will remain nameless and we will uh, get them on a doping regimen. And we will study this from, uh, yeah, you're Perfect. in your own on this one, Waltz. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm 100% behind this. You're in too, Lewis. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna bring somebody from that mid-packer up to the top, mm-hmm. and we're not going to let anybody know who it is. And it's up to right. the audience out there to speculate and whatnot who is actually on whatever kind of plan you want to do this. So I'm not sure. I mean, I still think – to me, the thing is it's still like – you know, if you go out and build yourself a carbon green boat that weighs 25 pounds, like you're going to drop 15 seconds. Like, I mean, it's just going to happen. Like if you take 15 pounds out of your boat and make it, you know, fully stiff, like you're going to go way faster. Lewis, I'm talking about human growth hormones. Like that's exactly. like, I'm talking about, I know, enraged. I know you are. We're talking just, about anabolic just enraged. It's, it's, it's not even May yet, and I'm already sick of the green race. <laughs> eight two eight is great. All right, thank you so much for that, Kenny. That was badass. That was really cool. With gratitude, guys. Job less. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kenny. Uh, thank you. Okay. An amazing piece of science, right there. I don't even know what to say. This is the longest we've ever done the Hammer Factor. It's fully out of control, off the rails. Let's get Jared Seiler and Graham Seiler in. We're going to talk about paddling bros. We're going to discuss a few things. But before we get into this, there's one thing that Kenny's going to get in trouble for that he didn't mention is he didn't include the ladies class. So I just got to give a big shout out to Adrian, eight-time Green Race champion. is the most championships out there. Good point. Um, all right. Jared Seiler, 
You need no introduction. Are you there? I think he's yeah. asleep. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> this thing's still on? <laughs> Jared, Jared, thanks for holding. Uh, welcome to the Hammer Factor. Um, we're all big Jared Seiler fans. Jared, what's going on? Right on, man. Well, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to come on here and shoot the shit with you guys. I've been a... Well, actually, I don't really listen to this show that often, but... I listened to it a lot today. <laughs> <laughs> well, on the last on the last uh, show, Nicole was talking about some time in the Dimshits van, and she brought up shark versus bear. And there was a little right. bit of discussion about what that was between you and Graham, and we were hoping you could fill us in. Wow, uh, that's digging deep into the uh, the van archives, uh, conversations, and random shenanigans, but. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, we've all spent a lot of time on the road driving to strange destinations and uh, doing strange things and talking about strange things. And that was one of the conversations my brother and I got into. I think there was like a uh, Discovery Channel show that had like predators that like battled like a, <laughs> like a lion versus a gorilla or something like that <laughs> and uh, so we started like trying to come up with our own kind of do it like you know battles and we came up with uh, shark versus bear and um, boy this show just took a 180 degree turn <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, uh, I'm sure Kenny could do like a statistical analysis on it and really, really nail it down like exactly which shark would be, you know, which bear, but um, based on our, uh, you know, research, we came up with it was really just it determined on the water level um, whether or not a a bear could beat a shark. So there was resolution though. You finally decided yeah. who was going to win, shark or bear. Yeah, I think the shark is definitely going to win, but uh, if if shark was on land. The bear would definitely fuck up the shark. <laughs> so was there any kind of like... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I wish Kitty was here to hear that. <laughs> yeah. That's... <laughs> it was, it was over, over in a couple seconds. That was easy. <laughs> well, you know, actually, I was looking looking it up online today because I I knew you guys were talking about this. So I did I did some Google research and I found this one shark actually in Greenland, and it, uh, they eat they eat polar bears. And even if the polar bear did beat the shark, the shark has, like, poisonous flesh. So, like, <laughs> even if the shark or the bear ate the shark, it would still die. So, so that really solidified the shark. So, 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 so what you're saying is... I don't think there's a chance, though, man, you know? 
I feel like I'm in the Demshits van right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like in the theater of my mind, you know, I'm there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we're so well, far. You got to find something to talk about. <laughs> we're so far. <laughs> we, we now know that the shark is always going to beat the bear. We've, so, yeah. we've settled that. <laughs> Especially in Greenland. <laughs> and we are so far over time schedule. We were gonna get into some other things, Jared, but I think we're gonna have to I think we're gonna have to move to ransom raves at this point. Unless right on. you guys want to jump into anything else about sharks versus bears here. I mean oh, man. I have that a was... whole I have a whole show personally I really want to get into a little more serious about brothers who paddle. You know, you and Graham, yeah. Lamblers, yeah. Iron Brothers. Do you recommend it or not? Oh, it's the best, man. I mean, Graham and I have had, you know, it's it's a, it's one of the best things to go paddling with your bro. Um, it's definitely different than just a friend. <clears throat> it's like, you know, it's family. So when you watch your brother run something, you're like twice as scared as if like, you watched your buddy run it because if something ever happened, you'd have to like, you know, report to your mom, <clears throat> deal, deal with all that. So it's definitely a lot more emotional uh, paddling with a brother, but it's also a really, you know, awesome experience too. So, and it's cool to paddle with other brothers, you know, Graham and I paddle with the facilities and the Garcias and it's just, uh, and then, we did a Grand Canyon trip where we had a bunch of, like, we had the facilities and um, and a bunch of, like, friends, and we had their, our dads on the trip, too, so that was really cool. Um, and what's yeah, it's just been, it's what's been the awesome. worst fight you ever got in with your brother? I mean, I have two boys, and they fight, I mean, they get in the most ridiculous fights like the middle of the grocery yeah. store full full swing on the floor wrestling around like in the in the <laughs> deli section knocking shit over well yeah i think like maybe the bear versus shark thing maybe started a fight <laughs> <laughs> we just started throwing throwing down over that but no that was like usually what we fought about was just like stupid stupid crap like that and um i've never been in a fight like in my life with anyone except for my brother <laughs> and uh, they're usually you know super violent so jared who who in your guys's arguments was shark and and who was the bear i guess graham had the shark um like the pillowcase they were talking about <laughs> and i had the bear one i don't know how we got those pillowcases. But, uh, yeah, I was I supported the bear, <laughs> but I, I had I had parameters, you know. The shark had to be on land, so <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> or like three feet of water. <laughs> Anything over that, the bear was done. But <laughs> well, Jared, would yeah, you... Graham and I, yeah, we've gotten in some battles, you know, punched each other. It's just, uh, that's just what brothers do. Hmm. Well, Jared, since you're here, would you uh, like to get into the uh, Rants and Rave segment of our show with us? 
Yeah, let's see. What should I rant about? Hang on, hang on. Before you do, before you, last. before you do, we have a Rants and Rave sponsor. Oh, nice. <clears throat> Since we're sponsoring the Rants and Rave section of the show, we here at Liquid Logic would like to share a rave. We'd like to rave about Grace, Weld, and Geltman for getting together and making the Hammer Factor happen. It's been a salty, hilarious, and informative ride. We'd also like to say thanks to the, for the props and thoughts on the boats here on the show. Calling the BRAP the boat that saved kayaking is a great compliment, which we didn't think was possible from Weld. And just so you all know, we have a couple more boats coming out this spring. The smaller Delta V, the 73, is coming into production as we speak. If you don't know about the Deltas, they're a cross between the BRAP and the Hefe series, a boat that Grace spent a ton of time in. Also coming out this spring is the Home Slice, our version of an old-school slicey fun mixed with a modern surfing hull, and you can fit your shoes in it. Maybe someday Geltman will understand comfort. Cheers, fellas, and keep up the great show. So, who would like to lead us off here with our Rants and Raves segment? Uh, you want me to, or are you guys going to do it? Go for well, it. Well, if you have one, go. If you want to wait. Well, let's see. I was going to rave... I watched this awesome uh, old school kayaking video the other day, and it was called. Let me see if I can find it. Cavu Day. No, it's like I never even seen this one. George Boss actually showed it to me, but it's uh, it was called Fun Forever. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That like original soundtrack too. <clears throat> squirt boating yeah. maybe. Yeah. Yeah, squirt boating, and they were doing like duckies too. Yeah. Or thrill seekers, I mean. Yeah. And they were running all these like West Virginia creeks and the thrill seeker. And it was just uh, one of the coolest things to see because I kind of like analyzed it a little bit and came up with the, <clears throat> the conclusion that back then they didn't have boats with like rock, like bow rocker, crazy bow rocker, or like that length. Um, they were using like longer fiberglass boats that were that had like no rocker, you know, you could couldn't boof them or anything. And so they it seemed like they just started using these thrill seekers to go creaking because the bow would like plane over stuff and they could like run these manky rapids and things that they couldn't do with the traditional kayak. And I just thought it was like the coolest thing and super innovative. And just one of those movies that you don't, like, no one has ever seen, you know, like, only a few people have really watched it. And and that kind of, once like, brings me into my rant a little bit, too. Um, I think, I feel like these old school videos need to be brought back to, uh, to life on, like, online or on the internet. And I know, like, LVM is a prime example, like, I love LVMs and there's so many of them and you can't like no one has a DVD player, you know, anymore. It's so hard to watch them. Are they online, John? They're no, not. He, They're in a he, box. Uh, I have them. <clears throat> yeah. He's hoarding over the rice to those things. Right. <laughs> He's sitting right. on that gold mine. <laughs> yeah, I, want, I want more old school videos online. And then like the other day I was, uh, I made a comment on like some of those young guns who are firing up the big waterfalls out west right now, like the Torrid Boys and stuff. And it made me think of uh, that one kayaking video, Breathe, with the Priestley brothers back in the uh, day. I remember that one, yeah. 
Yeah, and they were in like crazy boats, like 3Ds and CFSs, and running stuff backwards for fun. And like <laughs> there, and like that one guy what was the name Tim Gross or something. He like ran Abaqua and landed on his head. That and, was like, sweet. Broke his legs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, like all these boys didn't even know what movie I was talking about, and that was only how many years ago? You know, 20 years ago maybe. And I grew up watching kayaking videos from like the Kearns and the Naps and and all those legends, and they were probably you know about the same uh, time difference. And I feel like it really shaped me as a paddler watching those those guys and all those influences and stuff. And I just I feel like we're we're uh, we're shorting the next generation without giving them these. Uh, these awesome videos to watch and learn from. So that's right. my rant. You could have something there. Yeah. Kind of bring that's a good one. All right. <clears throat> Who else? Anybody else got anything? I also I want to rave about attaining. 60 degree paddles are ridiculous. <laughs> a what? A 60 All degree right. paddle is like, is like, uh, it's like paddling mm-hmm. something like a Whatever. stick. I'd rather use a stick, I think. Whatever. Okay, you you jump you jumped the shark right there. It just happened. <laughs> All right, John, take us take take us away here. Yeah, attaining. It's time to start attaining, gang. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. You guys, you all live near some class two, maybe three white water. Uh, you're bored. You need to get some exercise. You want to improve your paddling skills. Paddle up that rapid. Get the I biggest think my dad actually. Find. My dad does have a sixty degree paddle. I could probably test off. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think you may ple- be pleasantly surprised with the results. <laughs> Jesus! And, and first of all, you're kind of you're kind of walking all over my rage. This show, I mean, Jared. God, did you, <laughs> we bring Jared on. I mean, you're back for more, Jared. Yeah, I agree. I agree with the attainments. Super spot on. Um, all right, I got some raves here. I got multiple raves. I'm gonna rave about Lewis in D.C. We got one of our own. Up there in D.C. I just, I don't know. I just like see you there at Hooters doing your thing. I want to <laughs> rave about Pisgah, some of the most killer mountain biking. I went up there to the Big East, Linville's in Pisgah. I'm going to rave about my Royal Flush spray skirt weld. Dude, this thing's going on four years. It's still dry and it's not wearing out. I think it's the best product you've ever made. Um, I'm going to rave about local boys, Michael Ferraro and McAvoy. Running the big 150 foot slide in High Falls, and that's it. I got that's my ray. That's that's what I got right there. Just raving. Yep, it's a good Man. one. If I thought of that many things to rant or rave about, I would be so stoked. So I'd write them down and I would drag them out for the next month because I'd <laughs> never know what I want to rant or rave about. <laughs> Graham, are you there? Oh, there he is. Yo, you guys hear me? Graham. Oh. All right, we got Graham, brother Siler <laughs> on the. On the show here, walking around now. Now, real quick, we're way out of time, Graham, but it's perfect you came up right now. Bear or shark, and why? Oh, totally shark, like 100%, just because they got bigger teeth and then bigger jaws, man. Like, you can swim faster, too. Like, if you eat the bear falls in the water, like, totally screwed. End of story. End of story. That's a pretty compelling argument. You know, we we thought we were original bear versus shark people to you know come up with like that whole matchup, but then we we googled it and there's actually a band called Bear versus Shark, 
in Michigan. <laughs> so there's been other there's been other debates on this. We're not the only ones. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Hammer Factor. <laughs> <laughs> it, 